It's the 7th of July, 2015, and this is episode 228. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hello and welcome everyone. This is Andreas Antonopoulos and here on Let's Talk Bitcoin today we have a very special guest. About a year and a half ago I had my first interview with Adam Back and many things have happened since then. At the time we talked about some very futuristic technologies including a concept of sidechains and since that time Adam co-founded Blockstream, a company that is implementing sidechains among a slew of other incredible innovations and very interesting technologies on the blockchain. Uh, For those of you who didn't hear the first interview, Adam Back is the inventor of HashCash, which is a technology that is a fundamental building block of both Bitcoin's proof-of-work algorithm, as well as most other blockchains out there today. One of the uh, few people cited in the Satoshi White Paper a veteran of the crypto space and also the cryptocurrency space. Adam, welcome back to the show. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be here and talk about sidechains. About a year ago, we were starting to have these conversations about sidechains. The company Blockstream was formed with a number of very prominent and very active uh, developers who are great innovators in the space. Just a few weeks ago, the first alpha edition of sidechains technology was launched with the elements project so can you tell us a bit about the journey of getting from this idea we talked about a year and a half ago to releasing the first alpha there was a kind of sequence that people go through when they get interested in bitcoin and they want to use their inventiveness to find ways to improve it or to extend it and As they go through that process, they start to realize that it's actually quite difficult to modify Bitcoin for a very good reason, which is that, you know, the soft use analogy that it's like modifying the flight control software of a super jumbo in mid-flight with hundreds of passengers on board, except that this one has three to four billion dollars on board, and people will be very upset if you break it. So all changes to Bitcoin are kind of very heavily vetted, very carefully analyzed, and tend to be incremental and defensive in the way that they're constructed. So there there is quite a lot of active development going on in Bitcoin and some interesting new features come in, but it's it's difficult to do the more kind of sweeping, wide-ranging changes within Bitcoin itself. So that kind of backdrop led to the discussion about, well, how could we overcome this issue so that Bitcoin could innovate faster and people could try different bits of technology in kind of isolated sandboxes or in an isolated sub-network, basically. And that's, that's what a sidechain is. It's interesting that you frame it in the context of accelerating innovation and development. And when we originally talked about this idea, you talked about branching features out into sidechains for experimental purposes. And yet a lot of people who first are acquainted with sidechains assume that, it, that it's really about empowering altcoins or altchains and linking those to Bitcoin rather than helping the innovation of Bitcoin itself. People have tried, um, you know, there there are a kind of range of types of alternative coins, some of them with some interesting features and some of them which are more just 
economic experiments. Frycoin, which is an interesting economic experiment in Demarage. There are a few other altcoins which are doing interesting, let's say, privacy-related things. And so one of the challenges with starting a new coin is that it's, you know, it's a from-scratch experiment. You may not make the kind of bootstrap of level of interest. Volatility will be worse. The security will tend to be worse because the rate of mining will be quite low. So it's quite challenging, actually, to start a new coin these days. So Bitcoin had it easy because in the first year or so, there was no exchange rates, fewer transactions, less economic incentive to attack it kind of thing. And more kind of shallow bugs were fixed at that point. So that there are very few left at this point, only with any kind of security implications. It's tough starting a new coin, shall we say. And also people often, they just want access to the feature. They don't necessarily want exposure to kind of high risk profile extremely volatile, speculative asset. And so a sidechain gives you a way to do that kind of experimentation but in a way that's connected to Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, the technology is generic. This, this could be, change set could be applied to another coin, potentially. But the interesting thing is to kind of separate out the speculative element from the innovation element. So now we can innovate directly within Bitcoin and we can do interesting things. And so... So, for example, I mentioned privacy, and we have this confidential transactions feature within the sidechain alpha. So alpha is it's actually the name of the network because it has its own network. And as we bring out second networks, there'll be a beta and a gamma in that kind of sequence. One interesting thing about sidechains is that it allows you to move coins between networks. So the alpha network is connected to Bitcoin's testnet, because it's an early-stage version of the software, and we don't want to put live Bitcoins in it until we have some more quality assurance under the belt. But as we move to beta, we won't decommission alpha. We'll just allow people to move coins out of alpha into beta and back again if they would like. It kind of demonstrates the flexibility of running multiple networks. Actually, all of the versions will be running in parallel. For a person who's interested in experimenting with Alpha, the experience is very similar to working with Bitcoin Core in terms of the user interface on the command line, the RPC interface. And the graphical user interface is is barely modified from what I understand. But essentially, you're running a node, and that node is connecting to the Alpha network, which is running a sidechain. And that sidechain is then linked to Bitcoin's testnet. Correct, yes. Very good. Let's talk a bit about some of the compromises that have gone into Alpha. Now, this is the very first sidechain. People can use it today to start experimenting. And before we go into the specific features that people can experiment with, can you talk about some of the compromises that have gone into the Alpha chain in terms of, for example, two-way pegs, and the need for a change in Bitcoin to support sidechains. As we talked about in the distant past, and some of your listeners may be aware, the actual uh, full implementation of the sidechain that can connect to Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin network, and where you can move Bitcoins out of Bitcoin into the sidechain and back again, requires a, a change to Bitcoin. Now, this is a, a soft fork change, so it's... Uh, backwards compatible and can be phased in. And Bitcoin has done a number of these kind of changes in the past. So they're known to be manageable from a change management point of view. 
obviously at this point we're working with testnet coins and the process of discussing that change with the technical community hasn't started in detail. In order to have a facility for people to use it anyway, in the meantime, we've kind of used um, a sort of workaround or bridging technology. There are a group of what we call functionaries that are all the sidechain looking as they would in the final picture. But for Bitcoin, these functionaries look like multi-signers. So if they have a multi-sig, they control ones that are in the sidechain. So we say functionary because they're not in a discretionary position. Their job is to listen to the withdrawal messages on the sidechain. So if the sidechain says, okay, this coin needs to move back to Bitcoin, their job is to move it back to Bitcoin, not to decide some policy or something. In fact, the functionaries in the live system with Bitcoins, which will come later, will use tamper-resistant machines. So a computer that open the case, you'll zero the keys and things like that. And that will help ensure that somebody tries to tamper with it or you know, somebody breaks into the data center, it will be much more difficult for them to override its behavior. So it's a, it's a multi-sig, so you might see an example of something like six out of eight of these functionaries have to agree to move a coin for it to go across the boundary into Bitcoin, vice versa. Sidechain Alpha also has signing instead of mining at stage as well. So the transactions are not mined. They're signed by actually the same group of functionaries. That could be a different collection of functionaries in a different threshold. So there are up to one megabyte transaction blocks being signed by the Federation of Functionaries on an approximately one-minute interval in the Alpha network. In a later version, we will add some additional support so that it's closer to the final picture. Once a change is made using a soft fork in Bitcoin Core, let's assume that you negotiate with the core developers, reach consensus, and a soft fork change is introduced into Bitcoin. How does that change the relationship between Bitcoin and the sidechain? And what does that do to the role the functionaries play? You can think of Bitcoin's proof of work as a signature with a vast number of signers. Let's say there are 5,000 nodes out there. What Bitcoin's proof of work does is it says, well, the majority of them agree that this is the correct transaction set. This transaction set is valid. In the functionary network, it's also a multi-signature, but it's a much more static one with, you know, five of eight, six of eight Kind of individually identified miners because there's procedure to replace one if one goes offline or this is to participate, but it's more manually managed and static. Whereas Bitcoin is much larger set of signers. They're signing via their proof of work and there's no permission or identification or enrollment to participate in this signing. You just show up and you start mining. So it's basically permissionless, massive distributed, multiple signature, big multi-set. What would happen is the functionaries with their static constrained signing possibilities would be replaced by the Bitcoin security model, the big multiple signature constituted of all the miners. And in the sidechains paper, we refer to this as a dynamic membership multi-party signature as an alternative way to describe the proof of work and the effect that it provides. It has a number of interesting properties because it's decentralized. It's very difficult 
to see any kind of policy abuse because there are so many people that will randomly win the, the next block and their preferences will be set. So one, one individual participant's preferences don't have sway over the system. Just for those who are more technically inclined, maybe we could add a tiny bit of detail about the soft fork change. I'm not sure if I understand it correctly, but my understanding is that it involves introducing a new operand in the scripting language that allows for SPV proofs from the sidechain to be used to unlock outputs in Bitcoin. I don't know if that's a good description, but if you could give us a good description of what it involves. That description is fine. And in fact, it's almost the Bitcoin scripting language is a programming language in its own right. And so it's almost but not quite possible to use the Bitcoin scripting system to write a program that could receive the proofs from a sidechain. But there are various disabled opcodes and restrictions. I think some opcodes were disabled in the past because their security was unknown. One opcode was found to have a defect. So somebody, I mean, maybe it was Satoshi, went and disabled a bunch of them just to be on the safe side. And so we lost some flexibility there. It's relatively close to being able to implement it directly, but for efficiency and to overcome that fact, we could make an opcode that is kind of specialized to accept these proofs. The proof on a sidechain coming from a sidechain is basically that the sidechain asserts by the proof of work on the sidechain that this transfer back to Bitcoin is, is valid and authorized from its point of view. So the full kind of proof of work chain is quite long because you've got you know a new block coming out every 10 minutes. But there's a particular mechanism involving skip lists to make a so-called compact SPV proof. A more efficient way to do it would be to make an opcode or scripting facilities that can validate one of those. They are not tiny, but sort of 1 to 10 kilobyte range. The idea with the compact SPV proofs is actually they are kind of a mechanism of last resort, which is to say, you know, let's, let's say there are people actively using a sidechain because it has some particular feature they want, let's say issued assets or confidential transactions or something. And so some people are moving coins in there, they're doing things with them, maybe for long-term storage, they're moving back to Bitcoin. So there's, there's trade going both ways. And in the normal run of things, those people can swap coins. So there's no need to resort to the return peg. And also people doing arbitrage can get into that game and you know solve the tri- time preference by having a store of coins on both sides and swapping them for a small fee. And it, it also ties into Lightning. You, with, you, can, you should be able to swap sidechain coins for mainchain coins using Lightning as well quite instantly. So essentially, the, uh, the peg between the two chains acts uh, as a payment channel where you only need to use the compact SPV proof to effectively settle the channel and close it, but all of the intermediate trades could be happening through arbitrage or swapping coins outside of this mechanism. Yes. I mean, for efficiency, it's, it will be cheaper, in fact. So there's a win-win opportunity for some doing arbitrage. For, uh, so it's take a bit of capital, $1,000, $100,000, coins on each side, and sit there and market make that situation and take a small fee they can offer better value to a user than paying the fees for a large transaction with a direct peg transaction. But the arbitrager himself, you know, if there's a currently a net inflow to the sidechain, he's going to run out of coins on one side. And so what he can do to replenish his store of coins is to exercise the peg himself to rebalance his funds. You know, so he has a hundred thousand dollars on each side. 
and he's used up all of one, all of them, and they've gone to the other side, and there's nobody else with the you know, for that size of order in there to swap them back. But he can just move them back as one lump to rebalance his arbitrage funds. So that that's really where the arbitrage comes in, is if there's an imbalance in the market conditions or the arbitrager wants to rebalance. The other way to do it is without involving a third party, you can do an atomic cross-chain swap, which is an existing protocol that's been known about in Bitcoin, where you can swap one coin for another, but you can do that between different chains atomically. So that would work in this situation. And when the Lightning protocol is available, you can actually do atomic cross-chain swap on the Lightning network, which is much cheaper and faster than an atomic cross-chain swap is um, a moderately slow kind of process. It, it involves transactions on both sides. Well, the introduction of sidechains has certainly been long awaited and people are very excited about the possibilities, but the introduction of the alpha network was not just the sidechains technology, but also half a dozen or more elements, as they're called, which are specific features within the sidechain that are uh, testing now and can be developed and tried out by various developers. Can you uh, describe some of those elements? We tried to pick an interesting set of features that would be of interest to the Bitcoin community at large, to very technical people who develop Bitcoin applications, and to business and banking and finance ecosystem that's starting to look at Bitcoin blockchain technology as a kind of upgrade to their protocols with better trust characteristics. And so a number of these things are interesting to multiple people. So. Confidential transactions is an interesting one in that regard. What that does is use some interesting cryptography. The idea is that you can choose to not reveal the value of a transaction except the person you're sending it to. The actual value is committed to, and the miners and everybody, or the full nodes and everybody watching the network can check that the values add up, but they don't know what the values actually are. This works via something called a homomorphic commitment, which is sort of related to a homomorphic encryption. So generic homomorphic encryption is more a research and development topic and is quite inefficient, but that's homomorphic encryption. The, the generic version is when you can both add and multiply in the scheme. But for schemes that where you can only add or only multiply, there are many perfectly efficient systems. And so the homomorphic commitments is using one of those. So the discrete log scheme used by Bitcoin is amenable to that, in fact. Now, the only slightly complicated factor about doing this is that the addition is not normal addition. It's addition modulo n, which is a order of the group, a very large number. So the problem that arises is somebody can, if they start out with five coins, they could change that into a transaction where they have 10 coins and minus five coins. And if you, if you can't observe them, won't know that this minus five has been hidden, you know, Dash somewhere, which is not spendable, but they'll have created five coins that they didn't own. So the more complicated thing is how to prevent that. And how you prevent that is with zero-knowledge range proof, proofs that the number doesn't wrap around. That's working in the sidechain with Greg Maxwell and Peter Wool optimized it quite a bit. There was an original proposal going back to 2013 on the Bitcoin forum that I had posted. And Greg has invented some generalizations of some of the crypto that make it even more efficient. So that has interesting applications. 
we have a situation where some people in Bitcoin companies are being paid in Bitcoin. And, you know, if they go to buy a cup of coffee, it might reveal their paycheck, the person selling the coffee, for example. And this, this would solve that kind of problem. One of the exciting things about confidential transactions, from my perspective, is that it demonstrates the, the level of research and invention going on in this space. Bitcoin, by bringing all of these economic incentives to bear, has created an environment where some of the frontiers of cryptography are being aggressively pushed forward. At first glance, the confidential transactions is an amazing application. But if you dig into it and read some of the details, then you find that some really, really novel stuff has been invented from scratch by yourself and Greg Maxwell, Peter Wool, and others to make this happen. It's really an exciting development. So I mentioned that some of these features, they're attracted to multiple segments of the Bitcoin user base and companies interested in blockchain technology. So confidential transactions, you know, we, we talk obviously to a number of financial players who are interested in blockchain technology. And it's very common for them to say that they would be interested to use Bitcoin as, as a settlement mechanism, but they're a little worried about the degree of transparency. So, you know, they have their business records and the people they're trading with have records, even requirements to record and keep those kind of records. But in a proprietary trading desk, for example, they don't want to expose their positions to the world or other world, you know, how much they're trading and something. Because people can then play against them and affect their, affect their profitability in that trading. And so confidential transactions addresses a problem for them as well. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. That little musical interlude is called Flutro from the group The Free Descendants of Man. Today's magic word is side. That's S-I-D-E. Side. You've got until the 14th of July to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Also, if you're interested in the Tokenly project, we've hit our alpha release milestone and have our three core applications and tools now available as we onboard initial merchants, token creators, and generally customers who want to use tokens easily and cheaply in their own projects or businesses. To learn more, hit the token services menu item at letstalkbitcoin.com and stay tuned for a more comprehensive update on an upcoming show. But for those of you who are anxious to see what's up, you know where to look and it's ready now. That's all for today. Let's rejoin Adam Back and Andreas now for the rest of their conversation about sidechains, snore signatures, and more. People will be familiar with color coins where you automark bitcoins to indicate it's a share in you know, a startup or represents ownership of a bond or even a physical physical property or smart property. 
using watermarks has certain implications. So it makes it difficult for SPV wallets to be aware and it implies restrictions on the smart contracting you can do with it because the Bitcoin contracts are not aware of watermarking. With the issued assets feature, what you're able to do, there's a, there's a new type of transaction which allows you to create a new type of asset and issue a bunch of units. There's no mining or supply curve going on, but you're, you're the definitional owner of these assets and you're issuing them. So if it was a startup, you know, you've done a stock issue and now you're selling some of them to an investor, use them for a range of things. The sidechain blockchain is, is aware of them. So they're, they're tracked as a separate type and there are new rules that say that all of the transactions in a block, okay, so, you know, they have to add up. But in this case, the, say, the number of assets of type one have to add up. There's a validation that the assets all balance per type as well as the Bitcoins. There's also uh, smart contract extensions to allow trades. So you can use this to build peer-to-peer trades and decentralized exchange technology. So if somebody were to issue US dollars as an issued asset or euros collaboration with a bank or a startup that's interested to do that, then people would be able to have blockchain-enforced atomic execution of trades without trust in an exchange. Might use an exchange for the price feed and the introduction to find out which bids and asks are there. But the bids and asks are blockchain executable bids and asks. So you, you would be selling it saying, I'm willing to sell this stock unit in my startup for one Bitcoin. And other users have come along and say, well, okay, you know, they'll put in their bid. That's your ask. They'll put in their bid. And as long as their bid is higher, somebody can assemble those and send them to the blockchain and they'll get executed. Notice that the people involved with this don't actually have to be online because they can, they can place their limit orders and walk away and an exchange can trustlessly settle those without being able to take the assets that has uh, interesting applications. In that particular example you just offered, the exchange can do the order book matching without having custody of the funds. Exactly. That's, that's the key. Right? So we've, we've got this long history of people having custodian failure or seizing operations or people in exchange business, let's say, failing at reconciliation. So they had some Bitcoins and they had some dollars. But their database got out of sync and they lost track of how many coins they had and then they had to switch off and they were basically to some level fractional at that point. So people only got back cents on the dollar or in the case of Mt. Gox, it's still going and going, right? In this model, you would have control of your Bitcoins in, let's say, a hardware wallet, Trezor or something. And you might, with the sidechain support there, also have your dollar balance issued by somebody in the same environment and you can trade in such a way that you your the custody of your coins and the dollars never leaves your device basically so there's no network hacking exposure even that hardware wallet you know obviously with issued assets there's always the issuer risk but that issuer risk doesn't have to be an online risk and many of the failures have been online risks you know somebody hacking something bypassing some control whether that's an insider or an outsider. One of the other elements that uh, certainly caught my eye is uh, Schnorr signature validation. Multisig has obviously had a, a very large impact on Bitcoin in the last two years and its use and complexity and the things that are being built with Multisig is growing. 
what do Schnorr signatures bring to the equation and why was that project one of the uh, ones chosen to, to add to Alpha? People have been talking about Schnorr signatures for a couple of years in uh, Bitcoin technical forums and they have a number of interesting advantages. So one of them is that they're simpler and as a result of the simplicity, it transpires that you can add together public keys and that is the public key of like the group of these people. Let's say there are three people in a multi-sig. So if we add together their public keys and we add together their signatures of the same message, the addition of the signatures is a valid signature as made by the addition of the public keys. So that kind of interesting property means that we can have a three of three multi-sig within the space of a single signature. So they're much more compact multi-sigs and Actually, since, since releasing uh, Sidechain Alpha, Peter Will and Greg Maxwell have used one of the new op codes to build a more generic multisig that's also compact. It uses that effect and a Merkle tree of public keys to get compact MFN multisigs as well, without changing the code base just by using some of the new op codes that are present that allow that kind of code to be written. So we can have then a quite compact multi-sig, even for potentially large parameters, well beyond 32, for example. So if you could have a thousand of a thousand, it would be the size of a single signature. So if not, not that compact, but still vastly more compact than Bitcoin ECDSA multi-sigs on MFN. That's a kind of technical advantage. You know, conserving blockchain space is a good thing. That, that allows us to get back more scale. As, as we see, you know, multi-sig usage is growing, and so that, that eats into the transactions per second you can achieve from a given box space. It may not be obvious to the casual user of uh, Bitcoin or even multi-sig, but a multi-sig transaction is significantly larger than, let's say, a regular single signer transaction goes from maybe three to 500 bytes to easily over a kilobyte. And with larger multi-sigs or lots of inputs, it's not at all unusual to have 2,000 byte transactions, much larger. And so with Schnorr, you could do this in the same space of a single one and at the same time expand the scope to multi-signatures involving thousands of actors. Right. There are trade-offs there. It's, it's the N of N, where you've got 10 of 10 or something that is optimally efficient. But using this uh, Merkle tree construct, which will be in a blog post soon, so uh, we might be able to have a link on the podcast page. Um, you can have N of M, so the more conventional N of M signatures, much more compactly, though not the same size as a single signature. So, I mean, what, what's going wrong, as you alluded to, with the Single multi-sigs is they are sort of simplistic and crude in the sense that, okay, you know, if you want two out of three people to sign, well, there's, you know, really three public keys and there's really, you know, literally two signatures there. It's linearly expanding with the number of signers. So there's, there's not really anything kind of cryptographic or algorithmic about a multi-sig. It's just literally multiple signatures in a kind of banking mandate sense that, okay, you know, two of three directors have to sign checks over this size, well, there literally has to be space for that many signatures in, this, in the CDSA multi-signature case. Clearly, a change like this 
will expand the applicability of multisig to things that we've never used this type of diffusion of control and power before. For example, you've used expanded multisig in the functionaries, but uh, you could assume that if you're building a centralized autonomous corporation or you're trying to do shareholder management and voting on the blockchain and you have 10,000 shareholders, now you could theoretically start applying technology like multisig directly to that. Right. So it, it definitely opens the scope for larger parameter sets to be handled efficiently and people may have some interesting applications for that. One, one application that we had in mind with a very large one out of a thousand kind of signature that's very compact is that, so people have talked about if you're a company that specializes in hosting and you've got thousands of servers out there and you want to know when they're hacked into, one way to find out is to put a Bitcoin on there and see when it gets stolen. Presuming the motivation of the person that breaks in is sufficient that they would actually take the Bitcoin. With this kind of one of a thousand, compact one of a thousand, you can use the same Bitcoin for all the machines. And if it's taken, you will see which signing key took it without having to have, you know, massive transaction with 32 levels of 32 multi-sigs or something. But yes, voting and those kind of larger participants set scenarios are interesting. There's another feature that's part of Elements that at first glance seems minor, but if you're paying attention to some of the things happening with Lightning and payment channels, it, it really rises to much greater importance. And that's relative lock time that Mark Friedenbach is, is working on. C- can you describe what that feature does and why it's important? So the original lock time feature in Bitcoin was a kind of um, post-data check. You weren't even allowed to present it to the network until the time has passed. Pierre Todd has been working on this area. As part of the Lightning Network proposal, they contemplated a relative check lock time. So the idea is that um, they have a transaction and with the regular lock time, time is already baked into the transaction. And so it's, it's going to expire. Right? So when it's expired, you have to do something with it. Now, with a relative check lock time, the time is relative. So it starts when you take some action. So have a transaction. And when I would like to exercise this time window, I send the transaction to the network. And now the clock starts ticking. So I have a week in which to execute this thing but I'm busy right now. I can send this token to the network in a month's time and the week window will start and I can claim it. So the time is relative to the inclusion of the transaction in a block? Yes, that's the key difference. And this is interesting. So going back to the original micropayment channels that Matt Carello and uh, Mike Hearn and others worked on, there's a time lock. And when the time lock expires, you, know, you have to tear the channel down and do it again. Right? So kind of ongoing maintenance load on the network of people tearing down and reestablishing channels. It's great once the channel's up because you can send payments one direction along the channel without touching the blockchain. Both parties could you know, wait until the time lock expired and reclaim what they're due and nothing more or nothing less kind of thing. So with the relative check log time, you can keep those channels alive indefinitely. So rather than it being a time limit, it's a usage limit. So if it completely runs out and there's no way to rebalance it, it's only when you've run out that you have to go to the chain, not, not due to time limits. The relative check lock time clause is only triggered, you know, say you were using a, 
there's a concept of a payment hub, so enlightening and other proposals like this. So say you were using that and it went out of business, it went offline, and you had some coins stuck on the transaction. So you can wait a while, and when the network's not too busy, you can start the clock on your reclaim transaction, and then within the time window, you can claim the coins that you're due when this node went offline. It moves the scalability and reduces the amount of on-chain activity to keep the channel alive. Moves that forward. Briefly on Lightning, the other innovation is that the channels are reversible. Uh, there's another proposal by Christian Deco, which is kind of similar from the uh, publication. And the other thing that's going on is that in a, in a conventional micropayment channel, it's point-to-point. So you know, I sign up for some video streaming service and I pay per kilobyte or per minute or something. But I'm paying the single party. And what these generalized models do is to build on the idea of having intermediaries who are hubs um, so that I can pay you if we share a hub or if the hubs that we're connected to are themselves connected. So you can, you can get routing of payments, micropayments through this kind of network. And the interesting thing is you don't actually have to trust the hub. They can't take your funds. A couple of weeks ago, we had Manuel Araos from the group that built Streamium, which implements uh, payment channels to do micropayments for streaming video. And they explicitly mentioned that one of the limitations of the current implementation is that you can only do live streaming from your um, from the producer's own system directly to the audience. And payments can only go to the producer of the video, which means that it's limited in scale to the bandwidth that a single producer can afford at their point of production. But if you were able to use hubs and route payments between them, that then allows the possibility of having service providers that act as content delivery networks or caching networks to massively increase the scale of, for example, video streaming out to an audience. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the high-level most uh, striking difference between micropayment channels and this generalized hub approach of Lightning and the duplex micropayment channels is that it's no longer point-to-point. It's anyone-to-anyone routing through a network of hubs. Because those channels are reversible, it can rebalance itself without having to go back to the blockchain to commit more funds, potentially. So there's a possibility to sort of rebalance a channel by paying somebody negative fees to take money on a different channel. The full implications have yet to be uh, seen and see how that works out under network conditions, but there's potential for points to flow around in it back to a period of time without needing to touch the blockchain. So it offers the opportunity, or you know, it does multiple things. It reduces blockchain demand for blockchain space so we can scale further. It gives instant secure transaction clearing. So unlike this problem that some people are having right now with unconfirmed transactions where it's difficult to have really high assurance that that's you know that you won't accidentally get double spent or maliciously double spent with lightning you don't have that problem and it uplifts so it's, it's still trustless so it uplifts all of the properties you'd expect from bitcoin of contract support of direct ownership of your assets so there's no intermediary that you have to trust other than this kind of time preference issue that if if a hub you're using goes offline you might have to wait a little bit to claim your coins One of the applications that I find fascinating where 
payment channels and specifically Lightning could have enormous impact is the cross-border remittances market where being able to use something like Bitcoin as uh, payment rails for doing cross-currency foreign remittances into the developing world is quite challenging at the moment. And part of the reason it's challenging is because of the ability to have liquidity on both sides of the transaction. Reversible payment channels seem to offer a very elegant way of not only solving some of those problems, but also doing so in a manner that doesn't have to trust the gateways or cash in, cash out points. Uh, Have you seen any discussions about the use of things like Lightning for remittances? I think uh, there are people who are considering the application. And also just the potential for high-scale micropayments, basically. Anybody can pay anybody that's connected to this network at very high scale, small payments for small transaction fees, the amount of spaces. You know, I mean, it's, it's no longer a broadcast network, right? The information flows only between the parties directly or via hubs. So it's much more like internet routing. Subject to mismatched flows limitation, which we'll see, there's you know much less in the way of arbitrary limits in throughput and scalability. It's more down to bandwidth, and you know if you have high bandwidth, you can send more transactions, kind of thing. So we don't have the broadcasting where the whole network has to keep within safe decentralization limits. How fast your link is between me and a hub and you and a hub. We're engaging in an online game that's, you know, doing micropayments for things. That doesn't worry anybody else, right? That, that only affects the bandwidth between us. Lots of exciting things happening with the first implementation of sidechains, sidechain alpha and the elements project. What should we expect to see next? Where do you see this project going? And when do you think we'll start seeing beta and further developments from Blockstream? So we're working on beta already. Can't give an exact timeline because we have you know, a number of things going on and it's a security product, so we have to focus on, on getting that right. Um, in terms of work, next, um, so Sidechains is, provides a number of things. One, one of them is a generic extension mechanism and there are a number of people who are interested and have picked up the software and are trying to do things with it. Um, there's a mailing list, there's an ISH support channel, Third parties, like other people, developers and companies, will be extending, you know, building their own sidechain, basically using the framework. Also, we've had people interested to contribute, to join in and help uh, build new features of the sidechain, you know, help, help build sidechain beta, basically. And we have a whole range of ideas queued up for the flexibility of sidechain as it goes into beta. Uh, the other project, the Lightning Network, that's something that Blockstream started working on officially with source code repositories on GitHub and mailing lists and things like that relatively recently. Do you see that as being part of sidechains in the future, or do you see it as a separate project that Blockstream just has interest in? Lightning is a generic sort of acceleration mechanism for blockchains. So it can apply to the main Bitcoin chain. So some of the features that we've implemented on the side chain, uh, such as the relative check lock time, and also the robust malleable, transaction malleability fix that we didn't go into, the segregated witness constitutes a 
very robust generic fix to transaction malleability. So you need both of those features, check block time and transaction malleability to get secure and the most efficient way of doing like lightning. So those features could be uplifted and added to Bitcoin potentially. The sidechain is built on Bitcoin, so it's it's a change set on Bitcoin. So parts of it can be pulled out as separate patches and applied to Bitcoin if people are interested to get those features on Bitcoin. So we could see Lightning being built on top of the main Bitcoin chain. We could also see Lightning being built on top of sidechains so that you could, for example, get this kind of scale and fast transaction settlement for also share trades and other, other kinds of transactions, as well as straight Bitcoin transactions. I think I view it as a key part of Bitcoin reaching very high scale and being attractive to many people and allowing it to uh, reach its full potential. We're very happy for people to come and participate, ask questions, try things out, make code, join the mailing list, uh, which is kind of technical focused. And there's also a pair of forums for Lightning, as you mentioned. So we're interested to see what people will do with it applications they can build with the new features. Some of the applications that people have been talking about, just I don't know if I can name any specific projects, but just in terms of the kinds of things people have looking at doing on sidechains. So there are things like zero cash. There are a number of zero cash projects. So there's been some interest to try to make a zero cash uh, sidechain. We've also had interest from people interested in the SNARK graphic primitive. So there's a possibility to build a sidechain with SNARK contracts, which means that the chain can validate the contract without seeing the details of the contract. And it's also possible to to use a sidechain as a vehicle to do quite different things like um, production markets or different scripting languages and things like that. So seeing some interest in that. This has been a fascinating discussion. It's it's great to see all of this innovation happening in the Bitcoin space. And for uh, those of us who are really, really interested in the technology and not just focused on price speculation, this is literally the golden age of Bitcoin. So much exciting stuff happening, so much innovation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas and Adam Back. Music for this episode is provided by Jared Rubens and the Free Descendants of Man. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.